Hi, I'm Suzanne Dudley, and this is the Power Up Your Sales podcast by Behavioral Sciences Research Press. For this episode, we decided to share Chapter 3 of the book I authored along with my colleague, Trilitha Bryant. It's called Relentless, The Science of Barrier-Busting Sales. While the beginning of the chapter talks about call reluctance, which is discomfort initiating contact with the people who can move you closer to goals that are important to you, the chapter actually focuses on what call reluctance is not. A link to the tables is in the episode notes. We've also provided links in the episode notes if you want to grab the book. But this chapter is on us. We hope you find it helpful. Sales call reluctance research, conducted by Dudley and Goodson and their associates, comprises hundreds of validated scientific studies of hundreds of thousands of sales professionals across multiple countries. It forms the basis of hiring and training best practices in sales organizations around the world. When it comes to detecting and measuring authentic sales call reluctance, they literally wrote the book. But that hasn't stopped many self-proclaimed sales experts from claiming that they have a truly different approach to tackling the problem of subpar sales performance. Such approaches often focus on improving the overall sales process, initiating, introducing, informing, and influencing. But while skill-based sales training is important, it often fails to acknowledge that call reluctance primarily affects the critical first step in that process, initiating or prospecting. Training topics like lead qualifying, product knowledge, and rapport building, while helpful, neither immunize against call reluctance nor treat its underlying causes. Learning to sell, or sell differently, puts the selling cart before the prospecting horse. It's wasted effort if you can't, don't, or won't initiate contact with prospective buyers on a consistent basis. If you struggle with prospecting fears, don't be swayed by practitioners who lack the knowledge or the empathy to provide meaningful assistance. They may or may not be well-intentioned, but their primary focus is on retrofitting a definition of selling that matches what they want to teach you. Some gurus address call reluctance by denying the problem even exists. One author takes this strikingly tone-deaf and inaccurate approach. Quote, Call reluctance is an easy label to apply because it seems to cover all sales sins. If you are so afraid to call, that you can't will your fingers to dial the phone or your feet to move. Quit. Go do something else. You don't have call reluctance. You are doing something you hate. End quote. Other self-styled experts take the position that call reluctance afflicts only the novice salesperson. Their common refrain is that getting a few successful calls under your belt is the golden ticket to overcoming prospecting fears. Yet our research shows that this isn't the case. While call reluctance scores may show a small decrease among sales veterans, those with five or more years of tenure, 
time and experience alone don't immunize most sales professionals against the costly effects of fear. See table number one for the statistical differences between experienced and inexperienced salespeople. Our approach to call reluctance is different. It's based on science, which doesn't lend itself to catchy sound bites or wisecracks, but has the virtue of being measurable and verifiable. It may not be seductive, but it's effective. With that in mind, let's take a look at what call reluctance actually is based on decades of scientific study. Just as important, let's examine what it isn't. Defining the problem, product and process. The most concrete evidence for the existence of call reluctance comes directly from its effects on prospecting activity. We use the product definition of call reluctance to describe the problem in terms of its result or product, low prospecting activity. Prospecting activity simply means the total number of face-to-face and other direct contacts you initiate with prospective clients. Genuine call reluctance always results in low prospecting activity. But just what does low activity mean? Low is an inherently unstable word. What's low for one individual or organization may not be problematic in another. From our perspective, low activity means prospecting activity that is insufficient to sustain personal or organizational performance objectives. In other words, you're not initiating contacts frequently enough to support A, your own career objectives, B, the potential of your market, or C, your organization's performance requirements. However you define low, it always represents a pothole on your path to success. The product definition of call reluctance is the one people most often intuitively rely on. But it's not enough to nail down a definitive diagnosis. Suppose you have a bad cough. You might have pneumonia. Or you could have just a cold. What difference does it make? Well, antibiotics can be prescribed to treat pneumonia, but they do nothing for the common cold. Same symptom, different treatment. Similarly, low prospecting activity means you could have call reluctance, but it doesn't necessarily mean you do. There are other factors to consider. More than simply not hitting your prospecting targets, you should explore the how and the why of not making those calls. Without that information, you can't know if you're suffering from genuine call reluctance or something else entirely, something that can't be treated like call reluctance because it's not. That's where the process definition of call reluctance comes in. It provides a systematic way to identify your specific prospecting problem. Authentic call reluctance requires the presence of three essential conditions. Motivation, goals, and goal-obstructive feelings. We'll take a deep dive into those terms in a moment. If your prospecting activity is low and one of these conditions is missing or deficient, you're not call reluctant you're dealing with a call reluctance imposter. Imposters mimic authentic call reluctance, that is, they can result in low prospecting activity, 
but they're not. Your course of action depends on your ability to tell one from the other. Diagnosing authentic call reluctance involves taking measurements of these three critical components. These measurements reveal the current status of important emotional circuits that influence your prospecting. Let's examine these behavioral components and how they affect your ability to initiate contact on a consistent basis. Motivation. Through years of use and exposure, quote, motivation has become such a fluid term that no one can claim to own the exclusive description of what it is, what it does, and how it's expressed. Even academics who study it don't consistently define it. We don't claim to have cornered the market on the definition of motivation. The best we can do is offer a definition that serves our purpose. It's not necessarily the best or the most comprehensive, but in our case, it describes how motivation relates to call reluctance. Keep reading, and perhaps you'll agree with our reasoning for the definition we've evolved over time. In the call reluctance process model, motivation is cognitive and physical energy available to support prospecting activity. From a mental and physical standpoint, it's the gas in your tank the spark in your plug. Motivation isn't a metaphysical expression of your purpose on earth or your reason for getting up in the morning, not for our purposes. Some sources define it as exactly those things, and that may be appropriate in certain applications. But to explain the relationship between authentic call reluctance and imposters, we require the very narrow definition we present here. Like any consistent, sustained activity, prospecting requires the mental and physical means to carry it out. Without that energy and reserve, contact initiation becomes an exercise in diminishing returns, like repeatedly cranking a car with a nearly dead battery and hearing the engine respond a little less enthusiastically each time. We can break your prospecting battery into three distinct components any of which can become a drain on your motivation. Amplitude. This is a measure of how much energy is available to the circuit that drives your prospecting activities. Some people naturally have more of it than others. Others may have their energy impaired by physical factors like illness, poor diet, or alcohol or drug dependency, or more insidious mental drains like lethargy or apathy. The outcome of trying to plug a low-powered salesperson into a high-powered sales career is the same as trying to charge a cell phone during a power brownout. The volts just aren't there. Duration. Sustained prospecting activity requires uninterrupted access to a stable power supply. To continue the cell phone analogy, if you notice your battery is at 12% and you don't have access to a charger, you may try to milk the power by putting the phone in sleep mode and only peeking at it occasionally. But you may miss an important call or text because the phone wasn't up and running when it came in. Some salespeople take a similar approach to milking their energy. When it comes to prospecting, they perform only as long as necessary to, quote, check in or reach a certain level of productivity. Once that level is reached, they power down until the need to perform arises again. If you find yourself mimicking this peaks and valleys approach to prospecting, 
dedicating energy to it only for as long as minimally necessary, it's likely that your prospecting regularly drops below your potential. Velocity. Some salespeople approach prospecting like the hare in the famous story, hitting the ground running and launching into contact initiation at breakneck speed. They may rack up great initial call numbers, but don't necessarily have a lot of stamina. Others are more like the tortoise, long-distance runners rather than sprinters. At any given point in time, their prospecting activity may appear less intense, even lethargic. Velocity is a stylistic difference that can help individuals and sales managers predict and account for patterns of performance. Goals. Motivation is energy. Like electricity, which is also energy, it has to be connected to something in order to do its job. Electricity has the potential to transform your cell phone into a device that delivers entertaining podcasts and hilarious memes but it needs to get there first. Otherwise, you simply have a generic power supply and a dead phone. It needs to be plugged in. Goals are the output device of your prospecting energy. They transform energy into action. The strength of your goals reflects the integrity of the connection. What's your motivation connected to? How reliable is the connection? Goal assessment is the process of finding out. Here's what to look for. Target. This is what you want. It provides the meaning behind your prospecting efforts. Where do your motivational wires lead? What behaviors does your motivation support? Ideally, you should have clearly focused career goals that are supported by your prospecting activities. These goals should be accomplishable where you are now not some other place, some other time. Motivation without clear goals becomes a mindless struggle without meaning. Eventually, your drive overpowers your direction. Prospecting becomes mechanistic and tedious, boring you to sleep behind the wheel of your career. Contact initiation inevitably drops off. Strategy. This is your plan of attack. Some salespeople take pride in being able to reel off their goals and ambitions at the drop of a hat to anyone who will listen. It impresses others and may even have helped them obtain their current sales position. But if you poke beneath the cover of their snappy patter, sometimes you don't find much else. No thought, no purpose, no planning, no meaning. Just easily remembered platitudes and empty ambitions recited for effect. Without a substantive plan for reaching your goals, you can easily get distracted, sidetracked, or just plain lost. One of the first performance areas to suffer the consequences is prospecting. Pursuit. Just do it. Some salespeople define their targets and then spend endless hours constructing elaborate lists, plans, and strategies for reaching them. The trouble is, they rarely do anything else they fail to devote sufficient motivational energy to actually completing the steps that would lead them to their goals. There's no target pursuit. Without pursuit, you'll never reach your goals. Goal disruptive feelings. The third dimension completes the call reluctance model. To be diagnosed as call reluctant, you must be motivated, goal-directed, 
and habitually disrupted by self-imposed mental obstacles when you attempt to prospect. Back to our cell phone analogy. Goal-disruptive feelings are like data throttling. Your phone is fully charged. You have an unlimited data plan on a brand new 5G network. But periodically, your wireless carrier steps in and drops your connection speed to a level below what your device is capable of for reasons that have nothing to do with you or the capabilities of the technology. Call reluctance does the same thing. It's an emotional throttle that disrupts the flow of motivational energy to clear goals. Energy designated for prospecting is diverted into fear-based prospecting avoidance behavior. Instead of supporting prospecting activity, it's redirected to recalling and reinforcing unproductive, possibly lifelong habits of escape and avoidance. Call reluctance consists of all the thoughts, feelings, and actions that get in the way of initiating contact on a daily basis. Wishing, waiting, whining, and blaming are some of the indicators of call-reluctant behavior. The Great Imposters When motivation and goals are derailed by fear, the result is sales call reluctance. When motivation or goals are missing or deficient, you also have a prospecting problem, but it's not due to call reluctance. It's an imposter. Are you currently prospecting beneath your ability or potential? Are you call reluctant or are you dealing with an imposter? It's important to find out. Let's explore three of the most common imposters in more detail. Low motivation. All talk, no action. Some salespeople lack motivation. Some are motivated, but not enough to succeed in sales. What about you? If you're not prospecting because you don't have the energy to devote to consistent contact initiation, then you're not call reluctant. You simply lack the motivation. Your low activity might look like call reluctance, but the similarity ends there. If you struggle with a low motivation imposter, you probably don't really want to prospect, close, take responsibility for your personal growth, or tolerate the frustrations associated with it. You're not reluctant because you can't be afraid to do something you don't have the energy to do in the first place. Note, low motivation can't be, quote, fixed via goal-setting programs or sales incentives. Having clear goals is not the problem for these individuals. They could probably articulate exactly what they hope to achieve or attain in terms of their sales goals. The problem is, Goals require a steady supply of focused energy to bring them to fruition, and they simply don't have it to give. Why not? Low motivation can have one of two sources, physical or emotional. You may recognize one or both in yourself. A person with physical low motivation may be a victim of poor health or poor health management decisions, illness, chronic conditions, Detrimental lifestyle choices, lack of exercise, and substance abuse can all deplete the amount of energy that could otherwise support contact initiation. A low-motivation individual of emotional persuasion, on the other hand, may have plenty of gas in the tank, 
but it's continually diverted into unproductive emotions like apathy, disappointment, and indifference. This phenomenon is seen frequently in veteran salespeople who are tired of repeated letdowns from management or scattershot reorganizations that marginalize their years of service. Angry, demoralized, or both, they want to care, but their energy is disproportionately funneled into self-protection at the expense of self-promotion. The thief of emotional energy can also come in the form of a major life event. Whether traumatic, the death of a loved one, an acrimonious divorce, or joyful, the birth of a child or an upcoming wedding, these times can be emotionally all-consuming. They command all the energy and attention that we have to give, and then some. And while the drain on our resources may be temporary, coping with these events in the moment often demands that we shift our motivation away from other concerns, including professional success. If this applies to you right now, yet you're still striving to improve, kudos for attempting to keep things, quote, normal. Our only advice is, don't try to be superhuman. Being human is just fine and natural. Keep reading if you find it helpful or simply a useful distraction to help relieve the emotional pressure. But we recommend that you delay actually applying any of the techniques in this book until you're less exhausted. They take energy, and you don't have any to spare right now. They'll be right here waiting for you when you're ready. Until then, we wish you all the best. Outlook The outlook for counteracting the low-motivation imposter depends upon whether the source is physical or emotional. If you suffer from low motivation due to apathetic indifference and can acknowledge your anger, then the outlook for corrective action can be very positive. This also depends on management acknowledging its own role in maintaining an angry, dispirited sales force, keeping its commitments, and being sensitive to the effects of corporate change on the sales force. Sometimes it takes the defection of top performers to less toxic competitors to make sales organizations see the harm caused by misguided policies. If the cause of your low motivation is physical, then lifestyle changes are necessary to increase the energy supply available for career-related behaviors like prospecting. If you can't or won't make those changes, then you can't reasonably expect a significant improvement. Career style. Here's what low motivation can look like. Do you see yourself in a number of these descriptions? You're satisfied with the way things are. You have little or no sense of urgency. You may enjoy rhetorical goal setting, but make little behavioral investment in following through. You have a hard time understanding why managers take issues like marginal performance so seriously. You're satisfied with just getting by when it comes to reaching quotas. Your poor performance doesn't really bother you or spur you to make changes in your behavior. You often leave tasks or assignments unfinished or finish them with erratic results. You're frequently late for meetings. When you show up, you frequently peek at your social media accounts on your phone. Your favorite part of attending conventions or professional gatherings is being entertained by humorous presenters 
inspirational speakers, or anyone who doesn't make serious demands on your attention or intellect. You respond to external demands for increased productivity by ignoring the problem as long as possible, then changing companies. You can work hard, but typically only in short bursts. Frequency of occurrence. Low motivation imposters aren't uncommon. Some companies and industries have more than their fair share, such as financial services and construction sales. Overall, 23% of salespeople in the U.S. lack enough energy to sustain their sales careers. Goal diffusion. Too many irons in the fire. Do you make time for prospecting in your schedule? Do you balance daily professional and personal activities with a firm written commitment to initiating contact with prospective clients? Or do you forge through your day insanely busy only to discover that it's too late to make prospecting calls? Salespeople with goal diffusion are motivated. They have energy, but it's focused on too many other things besides prospecting. Online classes, book club, coaching soccer, Chaperoning the sixth grade dance. Leg day. Can't skip leg day. Goat yoga. Blogging about goat yoga. Motivational energy is finite. To the degree that it's focused on other things, even if those things are worthwhile and rewarding in their own right, it's not available to support prospecting activity. Efforts to get in front of prospective buyers can't get off the ground because they can't compete with all the other interesting pursuits out there. If this sounds like you, your prognosis is likely inertia. Starting much, completing little, interested in everything, mastering nothing. But you're not call reluctant. You can't be reluctant to do something you're too busy to do. Goal diffusion isn't a time management issue. The most successful salespeople on earth have the same 24 hours per day as the least successful. The difference lies in how well successful people are able to prioritize what happens in those hours. For those living with the gold fusion imposter, it's not that they can't or won't prospect. Contact initiation simply doesn't land high enough on their to-do list to consistently be a priority. Goal diffusion has two common sources. First is boredom, specifically the belief that boredom can't be tolerated and so it must always be avoided. Some people are sensation addicts, always looking for new experiences, fresh thrills, new sources of fulfillment. Their craving for engagement leads them to fill their lives with adventures of one kind or another. They may be compulsive volunteers or wannabe subject matter experts, TV binge watchers, or seminar stalwarts. Adrift in a sea of possibilities, they may find it difficult or impossible to firmly anchor themselves to a prospecting schedule when necessary. The second source for those in a corporate environment is culture. Studies conducted with large, well-known organizations revealed massive gold diffusion scores within some companies' sales forces. Further inspection revealed that corporate policies, internal procedures, and endless record-keeping protocols in these companies were cutting into the time, attention, and effort of their salespeople. 
These included the requirement to learn and utilize new software systems that were supposed to increase productivity, but instead resulted in distracting and energy-sapping bouts of techno-stress. With their attention fragmented, salespeople were unable to focus their energy on selling. When this was pointed out to senior management, no one accepted responsibility and no one could remember exactly how it started. Like primordial ooze, it had simply evolved. Slavish attention to eye-dotting and T-crossing can result in frustration and rebellion where sales organizations want at least among top sellers. Think about it. If you manage or are a rock star producer, is a bit of sloppy record keeping a battle that really needs to be fought? Sure, procedures exist for a reason, usually, but at what cost? When goal diffusion is created and enforced through corporate policy, it needlessly stifles productivity, sometimes to the point that the rock stars start looking for a less restrictive environment to take their talents. Outlook. When goal diffusion is a learned response to coping with boredom, and if you want to change, the outlook for refocusing your energy is extremely positive. When it's due to corporate culture, the ball is in management's court. Smart sales managers want to keep their salespeople, especially their top performers, happy and productive. If that means giving them more control over their priorities at the expense of perfect paperwork, Savvy organizations, once made aware of the issue, are likely to do it. Career style. Here are some of the ways goal diffusion can appear. Do you relate to more than a few? If so, you may have the goal diffusion imposter. You have energy, but not a lot of focus. You start a lot of projects, but fail to complete most of them. You tend to quickly lose interest in new pursuits and activities. You feel a restless, continuous need for novelty, stimulation, and change. You have a track record of frequently changing jobs. You're familiar with many subjects, but only on a superficial level. You have a good general overview of your product, service, and market, but you lack in-depth understanding. You tend to pursue many different interests, some of which conflict with your career goals. You may feel a loss of control because you're chronically overcommitted. You consider yourself a self-starter, but if you're honest with yourself, your follow-through is poor. Frequency of occurrence. Goal diffusion is common, but data analysis indicates an overall decrease in goal diffusion scores in recent years. This corresponds to an observed increase in goal level scores over the same period. We'll talk about the low-goal imposter in the next section. Low goals, all dressed up with nowhere to go. Some salespeople have plenty of energy but don't know what to do with it. The connection between what they do and what they want to accomplish is corroded or incomplete. Goals supply the focal point for your prospecting energy. Whether they're missing or murky, it's impossible to focus on or even recognize the things that are important. It becomes increasingly difficult to sustain initiative when you don't know or can't remember why you should be prospecting in the first place. When goals become blurred, 
Self-promotion and self-advocacy become empty rituals, mechanical and soon discarded in favor of other things perceived as more rewarding. It's important to recognize that quotas aren't goals. They're corporate objectives, targets you need to reach to keep your job. They're not what you should aspire to. Goals are a mission statement of why you do what you do. They should be personally meaningful and anchored to a desired outcome that transcends hitting your numbers. Low-goal imposters have plenty of energy but nothing to plug it into. If this describes you, you may find yourself struggling to find meaning in your career and a reason for working so hard. You may even borrow goals that seem to be working for other people and mindlessly channel your motivation toward them. Examples of borrowed goals include recognition, parental approval, status, and financial reward. These are all worthwhile goals, but if they're not your goals, the pressures of consistent prospecting in support of an outcome you don't believe in will eventually erode them away. When your goals no longer provide meaningful career direction, your prospecting activity will likely drop well below what it could or should be. That isn't call reluctance. You can't be reluctant to do something that you really don't want to do. Origin The low-goal imposter can originate from various sources. A small minority of those who struggle with it simply don't have goals. Never have, never will. They're unable to direct their energy to anything that doesn't provide a short-term payback. These individuals lack fully functioning commitment faculties, a situation that ultimately may be traced back to brain structure or chemistry. But the majority of folks who struggle with this issue never learn to define goals, select them, and then strive toward them. This could be due to a lack of role models early in life. They didn't grow up around adults who had goals and purposefully worked toward them. It could also be because they weren't exposed to information or coursework focused on the life discipline of goal setting. This, however, appears to be a decreasingly common factor among younger generations of salespeople. In recent years, goal setting has become an integral part of classroom studies in secondary schools and sometimes beginning informally as early as first grade. Outlook If low goals are due to lack of role models or exposure to goal-setting information, then the outlook is very positive, assuming you seek out the missing elements. It may also be useful to refine existing goals to make them more personally meaningful to you. For example, if one of your goals is a six-figure income, but it doesn't seem to be spurring you on to positive action to reach it, consider redefining it in terms of why that income is important to you. What do you want to use it for? Early retirement? Longer vacations? Nicer things for your kids? This exercise may help you clarify the goals that you already have. An international study of salespeople that we conducted showed us some of the whys salespeople around the world embrace. In almost every country we surveyed, the chance to earn a high income was the number one motivation for choosing a sales career, with the United States, perhaps unsurprisingly, leading the pack. 55% of American salespeople named income as their primary reason for being in sales. But there were differences as well, 
more than twice as many Australian sellers as Americans, 25% versus 11.5%, enjoyed the sense of accomplishment most of all. Among Canadians, the independence of a sales career was second only to income potential, the only group to list this factor among their top three. Salespeople in Finland were the only ones who didn't choose income as their primary goal. They strongly preferred the lack of routine and sense of accomplishment they got from being in sales. As you define your goals, keep in mind that there really is no wrong target. And it definitely doesn't have to be monetary in nature. Career style. Let's take a look at what the low goal imposter looks like. How many of the following describe you? Your prospecting activity typically gets off to a fast start, but soon settles down to a fixed plateau. You fail to prospect or self-promote consistently because you're consciously or subconsciously waiting for an opportunity to do something else like changing careers or returning to school. You frequently monitor job postings, even if you're not actively engaged in a job search. You feel you're prone to job stress, burnout, or midlife crisis. You find yourself exaggerating your loyalty to your job, your company, or your coworkers to disguise an ambivalent attitude toward them. You prefer workshops and books about positive attitude, motivation, and other topics that are ancillary to the topic of setting and striving toward focused goals. You get inspired by motivational presentations, but only briefly. You're easily distracted by relatively trivial issues at work, like who has a nicer office, when the next paid holiday is, or who's planning the next company outing. You're unimpressed or unmotivated by incentives that seem to be reasonably effective in increasing other people's productivity. You get excited when new products or marketing materials become available, but your enthusiasm never seems to last long. You tend to talk long-term, but act short-term. You need a lot of supervision and frequent reinforcement to stay focused on your objectives. You often act impulsively without considering the long-term consequences of your actions. Frequency of occurrence. The result of the modern focus on goal setting as a skill to be taught alongside other academic subjects is an overall increase in goal-level scores and assessments of salespeople. This doesn't mean that a low-goal imposter is likely to become extinct anytime soon. Some people, for example, don't respond well to goal-setting programs or aren't interested. 22% of U.S. salespeople don't know why they want to prospect. But it's encouraging evidence that exposure to the discipline of goal-setting may have a positive impact on your ability to define and pursue prospecting-related goals. Goals and motivation. How much do you really need? How important are clear goals and high motivation? What is the correlation between what we call Big M and Big G and your personal success? Our research suggests those relationships are important, but in a more complex manner than touted by some self-help books that insist upon crystal clear goals and Olympic motivation levels. Data gathered from several studies may help to clarify the issue. For example, Dudley and Goodson's 1988 study of the insurance industry's million-dollar roundtable 
clearly showed that production was positively associated with goal levels, but within limits. Have a look at table number two for goal levels by sales production. After a point, engaging in goal-clarifying activities actually interfered with production. Participants who represented all MDRT production levels completed the call-reluctant scale, what we call the SPQ gold. Top-of-the-table producers, the highest MDRT production category, averaged a goal clarity score of 64% on a 100% scale. The year these data were acquired, top-of-the-table membership required a minimum of $240,000 in commissions. Basic membership required only $40,000 and corresponded with an average goal clarity score of 46%. To express those numbers in modern dollars, 2018 top-of-the-table membership requires $570,000 in commissions and basic membership requires $95,000 in commissions. These are the creme de la creme of insurance sales professionals. A non-MDRT comparison sample consisted of salespeople who represented the same companies and sold the same products at the same time and to the same markets as the MDRT sample. They also had approximately the same insurance sales experience. Their goal clarity scores averaged 39%. There is no question that for these samples, higher production is associated with clearer goals. The differences between these two groups are striking, but that's not the end of the story. The top of the table group, which included some of the highest producing salespeople in the world, averaged only 64%. That certainly shows disciplined daily management of goal-supporting energy, but it fails to support the fiction that high achievers are obsessive and mission-driven or have goals that are clearer than those of mortal men or women. In subsequent interviews, we learned that many of the highest producers did not have three- or five-year plans. Many were uncertain even about what they wanted to accomplish in the next five weeks. And in some cases, high producers were operating exclusively on a daily basis. A few knew what they were trying to accomplish, but had no discernible plan of attack. Paradoxically, the producers who were the most organized were the overpreparers, which we'll talk about in the next chapter, in the non-MDRT comparison group. They had everything organized and scheduled. These individuals kept neat lists, plans, charts, and schedules to project very lofty goals but they had very little time to make calls and few results to justify the time they had invested in preparation. Perhaps success in sales doesn't require heroic goals. The discipline to do the things that have to be done on a daily basis may be sufficient. If that's the case, then success becomes accessible to more of us more often. That is truly unexpected and truly inspiring. As part of the study, some of the top-of-the-table producers brought up the role of religious faith in sales success. Religious faith was an important aspect of their career management strategy, and they insisted that it be included in any explanation of their higher-than-average but unspectacular goal clarity scores. They reported that they conducted their daily affairs in the reasonable trust that their future is in better hands than their own. Quote, 
I just show up ready and trust the Lord to take care of the details, end quote, one said. To us, excessive planning and goal setting is a sign of call reluctance. To them, it shows lack of faith. Simplistic? They were some of the highest producers we've ever observed. What about motivation? Motivation scores were also analyzed in the above study. Like goal clarity, high motivation scores corresponded to high production and clearly distinguished the MDRT sample from the average producers in the comparison group. The top of the table producers averaged 74% on motivation, while the comparison group averaged only 42%. But like goal clarity, success in sales doesn't appear to require superhuman levels of motivation. The ability to consistently focus energy on daily goal-supporting behaviors like prospecting is more important than super high motivation. A final word on imposters. This book is intended specifically to help identify and correct authentic call reluctance. It's for people who experience emotional short circuits that limit their ability to initiate contact on a consistent basis. There's simply not enough room in this volume to include corrective measures for imposters or to present a comprehensive overview of the wealth of existing research into motivation and goals. We haven't even been able to list all the known imposters in these pages. Like call reluctance, new types emerge as the research evolves. A book dedicated to imposters is in the works, and we hope it will help the individuals who struggle with low motivation, low goals, and other issues. Until then, we urge you to seek out training, counseling, and advice from the many readily available resources as appropriate. Finally, some salespeople who successfully address imposter issues discover call reluctance lurking beneath the surface. They bust through one set of barriers only to encounter another. Emotional roadblocks to prospecting that previously were obscured by low energy or unclear goals now come to light, keeping their prospecting levels suppressed even after other issues have been resolved. The good news is that these roadblocks can be overcome by applying call reluctance countermeasures. In Chapter 5, we'll introduce you to these potentially career-changing procedures. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it with a friend or a colleague. I'm Suzanne Dudley, and this is the Power Up Your Sales podcast.